we're in second week of Advent, and uh, you know, last week we were in Luke chapter one, and Josh Hostetter walked us through that passage and did a great job. I listened to it online this week. You did great, thanks. And uh, he walked us through the whole series is on when heaven meets earth, and the first part of that, the first uh, installment in that series was called Fulfillment. And we were talking about when heaven meets earth, there's this great sense of fulfillment. All the prophecies are being fulfilled and God is, there's things that are coming to culmination, to fulfillment. And uh, a pinnacle among them was John the Baptist, who was the fulfillment of the, the spirit of Elijah coming before Jesus and, and laying the groundwork for Jesus. And Josh walked us through the characteristics of John the Baptist, which are actually principles that are true. Anytime God's gonna do a great move, you see these principles kind of taking place before the great move of God. And John the Baptist personified those. And that was last week. Well, now we're moving to the next chapter, Luke chapter 2. And when it comes to the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2 is kind of the definitional Christmas passage. You all know it and know it well. If you've heard a Christmas passage, I'm sure it's been Luke chapter 2. And uh, so that's where we're going to be camping out today. And uh, we're going to be reading the first few verses of that. And so we're going to stand in honor of God's word as I read it for us. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary pondered them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. God, add your richest blessings to the reading of your word. You can have a seat. The story opens up with a moment of context, and Luke gives us our bearings in the passage and lets us know what's happening in a number of different ways. First of all, in a historical way, see what happens is he says that there was a census to be taken over the entire Roman world. And the entire Roman world was basically, basically the entire world. The known world was basically the, the Roman world of the time. And, uh, and, and that, 
the leader, the emperor of that world was Caesar Augustus. And he issued this decree that a census would be taken of the entire world. And so everyone had to go to their hometown. Imagine this for a second. Just imagine if, if we had, in our world, all of a sudden, we had a census where everyone had to go to their hometown. And I'm not saying where you were born. I'm saying where your lineage was from because that's what this is. You have to go back to where, so I have to go somewhere to Ireland is where I got to go, you know. And we all have to go somewhere, you know. And you, and you have to, yeah, well, it depends on which of your last names you're using. We're American mutts, many of us, you know, coming from all over the place. Who, how would you even track that anymore? And, uh, and, but you got to go, and, and there was no airplanes, there's no trains, you know. You can't register online. You got to actually go back, and you got to get there. And you imagine the chaos, the madness of this whole thing. And so, of course, it's a huge historical event, which is why Luke uses it not only to describe the context of the story and why Joseph has to come down to Bethlehem, but he also uses it as a way of marking the time. Because you see, uh, the, the calendar at the time, this, is, this event, it's, it's relatively important. It's only God becoming flesh. You know, it's relatively important. You might want to mark that one down on the calendar. As a matter of fact, now our calendar's shaped around it, isn't it? A, D, B, C. And yet back then, that's not how they, they told time. There was these events and there was the leaders. And so he says, this was the, the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. I dare you to say Quirinius like 10 times fast and say census right next. Quirinius census and keep saying that. I'll mess it up in this sermon, I promise. And so Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and it was the first census that was taken, and that was the historical marker in the world, in the, in the, uh, in the global timeline. And this is important. Why is this important? Because what Luke is trying to show us is like, you know, this isn't just some religious myth or some metaphor. This is a historical fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, and here's the date that it happened. Boom. Deal with that. Can you uh, verify that Quirinius was governor of Syria? Absolutely, I can historically verify that. Can I verify that, that Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome? I can verify that. Well, then verify this. God became flesh. And he puts a historical marker on it, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not only a historical context that he starts off with, it's also a cultural context that he starts off with. He gives us a picture of what was going on in the world at the time. He shows us that, that Rome is, is, you know, expansive at this point and that Israel, who used to have its own autonomy, now is under the thumb of Roman rule. And when Caesar says jump, they have to say how high. That's the way it works now. And so he says, you got to go register and you watch Joseph and all the other Israelites. And what do they have to do? They have to go and move because Caesar said so. And it gives us context to understand where Jesus' family fits into the big picture at this point. You know? And so we're really getting rooted in the story. It's giving us a, a, a social and cultural context. It's giving us a historical marker. It's showing us where all of this fits and how it works. Now, I believe that this also gives us a spiritual context. At the beginning of this story, when it, tells, it talks us about Caesar Augustus and the census, it gives us a spiritual and biblical context as well. But we'll get into that a little bit later. And, and you'll see throughout the morning here how that uh, reveals itself. Now, this census creates an interesting situation for Mary and Joseph because now Mary is how far along in her pregnancy? What trimester is she in? Third trimester. Women, how does the third trimester work? I mean, you're ready to have a baby, aren't you? And uh, so what happens is, is here Mary is, and she is great with child. 
you know, as the King James would say it, you know, and she is great with child. And so here she is, she's ready to go. And Joseph comes to her, guys, imagine this conversation, honey, I know that you're in your third trimester. I know that things aren't easy. I know your back is sore, Um, but we have to take a cross country trek and we have to go down across those Judean foothills. I know that there's bandits and robbers down there who are trying, you know, we keep hearing about them. You know, it's like the Mexican cartel down there, you know, and, oh, I, I, and we keep hearing about all that. And we know we got to go down there. But you know what? And there's no train. There's no you can't drive your car down there or anything. Honey, I'll tell you what. You won't have to walk the whole way. I'll let you ride on a donkey. <laughs> That's a tough conversation to have with your wife in the third trimester, asking her to take a cross country trip. Um, you know, Mary, of course, is a pretty gracious woman. She's a woman of God, and I'm sure she was resilient and dealt well with it. What's more is this might have been a little bit easier than we think because I'm sure that the context in Nazareth for them was not one that was real friendly at the time. You know, here she is in her third trimester, unmarried, which was pretty frowned upon, as it well should have been, right? It should have been frowned upon that, uh, that there was a, a woman who was outside of wedlock who was, who was carrying the child. God said, very clearly, he doesn't uh, approve of those kind of relationships outside of marriage. And what, but what made it worse in Nazareth, of course, is that, is that they wouldn't own up to their sin, right? I mean, Mary and Joseph wouldn't just name it for what it is and say, sorry, we messed up. Instead, they had to make up some fantastical story about how an angel showed up and told them that she was going to have the Son of God, the Messiah, you know, and I'm sure that went over real well. And uh, so you can imagine that the context uh, of their, like, living situation and their family situation was probably pretty tough. So maybe a trip to Bethlehem was a little bit of a welcome escape for them. But they hop the donkey train and head down to Bethlehem and uh, they start uh, getting down there. And I love how what Luke does when he's telling us the story is he gives us the facts. Luke is kind of a fact kind of guy. That's what he is. He gives us the details and he gives us all the, the information you need to know. It was this time when the Savior was born. He's a doctor. He's giving you the, the important facts, you know. But what he doesn't do a whole lot is give you the drama. You know, he doesn't tell you about the conversation between Joseph and Mary when she has to go down there on her third trimester. He leaves some of that out. I mean, every now and then he'll tell you like, okay, they saw an angel and they were terrified. Well, yeah, we could have figured that one out. You know, like, but he doesn't tell you all the the drama about it. Like, for instance, I love this in in verse six of chapter two. It's amazing. Uh, It says, while they were down there, while they were there, that's in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then he goes right on to say, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Ladies, imagine like one of your girlfriends is pregnant and she goes on a trip. She comes back and she's holding a baby, you know? And you say, oh my goodness, you had your baby. Like, tell me about it. Like, oh yeah, we had it on such and such a date and uh, there wasn't any room in the hospital. So we were at a truck stop and I just had the baby at the truck stop and we put, we didn't have a place to sleep. So we put him in the, um, in the rental shower for the night, you know, at the truck stop. So anyway, what's going on for Christmas, you know, and just like, no, you know, like, what? Are you kidding me? Tell me about this. Like, what happened? You know, but Luke doesn't get into all that. He allows your imagination and your mind to, to fill up the details of the story. And there's some beauty to that. I mean, first of all, he gives us the facts, which are the important facts. He's not going to fill up all the details of it for us. But it's also nice sometimes that our imaginations can relate to this story and to many of the stories in different ways. Because he doesn't spell all of the detail out. He gives us the things that can't be changed 
and can't be moved and that we need to know. But we're able to relate to the story in our own imaginations, and it's a really special thing. One of the things that he doesn't give us much detail about is these shepherds. And when he talks about the shepherds here, all he says is this in verse 8. He says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. That's it. That's all you get about the shepherds. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, if you really want to build the story and the drama of the story, you've got to be talking about Jeb and Eli out there in the field, you know, and they're looking at the stars and looking at the constellations, and they're talking about the taxes that they're being hit with again with Caesar and how they can't pay for, you know, it costs so much just to shear the sheep, and by the time they pay for that, they can't get this done, you know, and you see them in this place of turmoil about their kids and, you know, not being able to be educated well or whatever's going on, and then all of a sudden in the the middle, but he doesn't give us any of those details. All he says is there were shepherds living in a field nearby. Did you catch that? Living in the field. They're not just hanging out in the field of the sheep. They live in the field. And you know they're not building big houses. This is like guys in the tents. Wherever the sheep go, they go and they set up their tent and that's where they're living. These guys are like living out there in the land. They're like, you know, roaming wanderers and they're probably stinky and they're out there in the field separated from everyone else. And we know that, and then, so they're separated out in the field, and then it says they, they, they have a certain shift they work. What shift do these guys work? Graveyard shift, man. These guys work late. They work at night. It says keeping watch over their flocks at night. Why were they working the graveyard shift? Predators. That's when the predators come to take the sheep. So that's when you've got to be up to guard your flock. And so these guys, not only are they way out in the field while everyone else is in town and, and they live in these tents, they also work the night shift. So they're completely disconnected from the reality of the rest of the world. They don't live in, in, in great community with the rest of the world. They're their own people. And the scriptures don't tell us they're lowly shepherds like the, like the song says, but they are lowly shepherds. How do we know that? Because there was no other kind of shepherds at the time. That's all there was, was little shepherds. Who else is living out in the fields in tents, um, you know, working graveyard shift, hanging out with a bunch of dumb animals, you know? And that's kind of how it was, you know? Like, this was the job that wasn't the coveted job. This was the, the, the uh, bottom-of-the-barrel job in a lot of ways. And so that's who these guys are. That's all the context we get. And then, in the middle of the night, God sends his angel. And his angel shows up to them. You got to ask the question. You have to ask the question. Out of all the places in the world for God to show up to announce his Savior's birth, why in the world does he show up to a bunch of shepherds in the middle of the night outside of town, disconnected from everyone? They're not the ones who people will listen to. Why does he show up to these guys? And perhaps, just perhaps, the reason is because God's showing contrast. When heaven meets earth, do you think that there's a contrast between heaven and earth? There, of course, there's a contrast. Heaven and earth, that, what is contrast? Contrast is when you differentiate one thing from another, when you see how one thing is unique and different from another. It's like when you go to an, an art museum, if you go down to the art museum in Philly, you don't look and see one of these you know, beautiful Monets hanging on the wall and have like real busy wallpaper behind it because it would kind of like blend in. Instead, you have plain white or like khaki walls, and then on top of that, you have this gorgeous piece of art that just pops out from it, right? And that's, that's why we put matting around pictures, because you, you have to, it has to pop out. There has to be contrast. Sometimes I forget how much my boys have grown. You know, they're only, they're only six and five, but then all of a sudden, somebody like Rob and Alicia have a baby, you know, and here's like a little, little baby, and I, 
And I, I hold this baby and I pray for it and I'm, I look at the baby and then I look at my kids and I'm like, oh my goodness, they've grown so big. And I forget just how much they've grown until I contrast them with this tiny little child. And there's something about contrast that really allows us to see something in its fullness. And perhaps coming in the middle of the night is a way of God revealing the brightness of his glory, maybe. Or perhaps coming uh, angelic choirs next to lowly shepherds provides some sort of contrast. I don't think so, though. I don't really think that's what it's about. I'll be honest. Because this is why. Honestly, having God show up with lowly shepherds in the middle of the night or having him show up next to Caesar Augustus himself in the noonday sun, it doesn't matter. It's going to be bright and it's going to be brilliant. It's like asking the Los Angeles Lakers to come and play against Owen J. Roberts' high school team or against Springford's middle school team. It doesn't really matter. Either way, it's going to be really ugly. You know, like it's going, to, it's going to be domination. And this is the way it is. When God comes and reveals his glory, it doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night with lowly shepherds or Caesar Augustus in the noonday sun, God will outshine in a way that you won't be able to tell the difference because the contrast between God and men, no matter where heaven touches earth, is a contrast that's much more differentiated than any contrast we know of because it's God and we're not. And it doesn't matter who you are. Thank you. (laughs) Now, there is contrast in the story. We know there's contrast. There has to be because heaven came and met earth. But I don't think the contrast is with shepherds in the middle of the night. I think that perhaps instead of it being the, the, the differentiation between the Messiah and the manger or angelic choirs and, and lowly shepherds, there's a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth, between the line of David and Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. This is where God's showing his contrast. Let me tell you why I think that. There's a census being taken. Is this the first time in Scripture that you see a census being taken? There's many census, a number of census. Senses. Sensei? Sensei, senses? Censuses? <laughs> I told you it's a tricky word. So uh, there, there's a number of these things that happened throughout the uh, history of the scriptures. One kind of stands out among the rest. Anybody think of an Old Testament census that might be related to this story? Can you think of anyone in the Old Testament who took a census? David. King David took a census. Remember what town they just traveled to? Bethlehem, the city of David. What line are they of? The line of David. Census, uh, David one time took a census. How'd that go for him? It didn't go very well, did it? It's amazing. The scriptures actually in Chronicles tell us that Satan incited David to take a census. That's the words. That's a quote. Satan incited David to take a census. That means Satan got up in David's ear and said, you need to take a census. And he did it. And he did it. King David did it. And we know that for some reason this was a terrible thing. I mean, we know it's terrible because Satan tempted him to do it. We know it's terrible because afterwards David repents of it and says it was a huge sin. We know it was terrible because Joab, the commander of his army, who's definitely not known for high moral fiber or for great wisdom, stands in front of David and says, David, of all the things you can do, don't do this. 
Don't take a census. May God add to your numbers and may he bless your army, but don't take a census. Why is God so bent about David taking a census? You remember where David came from? You remember what his job was way back when? What was he? Shepherd. Where was he a shepherd? In Judea, in the Judean foothills. Watching over his flocks by night, you know? And when God saw him, God loved him. God really loved David. You know why? Because in the middle of the night, when he was disconnected from everyone else, and no one else was around, and he's working graveyard shift, and his brothers are fighting battles against the Philistines, and they're doing all the fun stuff, and he's here in the middle of the night. You know what he's doing? He takes out his harp, and he decides to play music with his best friend. And who's his best friend? God Almighty. And the Psalms that we read, some of them are from these moments where David's praising God out in the fields in the middle of the night, keeping watch over the flock, which is the other reason why God loves this man. Not only because he has made God his deep friend, but because he cares about this flock that God entrusted him with. There's bears and lions and predators who are coming after his sheep. And what does David do when the bears and lions come? What's he do? Kills them with what? His bare hands. Who wants to volunteer? Who's going to put on the example for us? I mean, we have some big dudes around here. You know, who's going to come and be the, the one who will fight off the bear and the lion with your bare hands? Kidding me? Kidding me? Is it, so what is it about David that makes him want to just tackle a bear and tackle a lion? Is it just that he's a, you know, a, a little bit of a crazy adventurer? That might have a little bit to do with it. But that's not the big deal. The big deal is that he loves his sheep. And he was called to oversee this flock. And if these bears and these lions are going to creep up into his flock, you better believe they're going to pay for it. And he's going to stop them. And God looks at this Judean shepherd. And he says, he's a man who loves me with all his heart and knows how to relate to me. And he's a man who cares for the sheep that I've put under his care. And so when he looks around Israel and he decides, who's going to be the king over my people? That guy. That guy right there who will honor me and love the flock. And so he grabs this Judean shepherd and he has him conquer Goliath and he has him conquer the Philistines and he has him escape the clutches of his madman father-in-law, the crazy Saul, you know, and, and get through. And then eventually he makes him king over all the nation. And in that time, Israel was the superpower. Israel was the big established throne of the area, like Rome is in the, in the story of Jesus. And so the ruler over Israel is the ruler of the known world. And that ruler becomes David, the shepherd, who is now a king. And now that he's in power, and now that he's in this position of great influence, what is it that he wants to do? He wants to take a census. Why does he want to take a census? Because he wants to flex his muscles a little bit next to the guys next to him. And he wants to know how far he's come. And he wants to know just how big his kingdom has grown. And he wants to know how much military strength he has to lean into. See, David kind of forgot who he was, didn't he? He forgot where he came from. And he turned into Caesar Augustus, big bad emperor, and kind of lost touch with the fact that he was just a lowly shepherd who God loved. Fast forward a thousand years. It's a thousand years later. 
Hold on to that. Thousand years. Now, Caesar Augustus and the, Ro and the Romans are in power. And Caesar is the one in charge, and he wants to flex his muscles a little bit. And so he calls for the census. There's this guy named Joseph who's of the lineage of David. Now, I'm incredibly impressed with this. A thousand years later, and he knows, the, he knows his heritage and his family line back a thousand years. I mean, if I push a button on this thing, and I say just about anything I want, it'll tell me any information I need to know instantly. Except who my forefather was a thousand years ago. You know, it won't tell me that. It's amazing how, how much information we have at our fingertips, and yet some information we've completely lost touch with, mostly because we've lost touch with caring about those things. What's amazing is that when God communicates something to David, a thousand years later, he's going to fulfill that promise. Sometimes I have a hard time remembering what God was dealing with me about a few months ago. And Joseph knows who his lineage is a thousand years before. You know why? Because he understands that God works in eternity and God works across time. And if God spoke it a thousand years ago, he knows that his word won't return void. And that if he hasn't seen the fulfillment of the promise of God yet, he better hold on because it might happen during his day because he's of this lineage. So he's still holding on to promises that were made to David a thousand years ago. We have a hard time remembering what happened last week. And, and if we can trace our lineage back to the Revolutionary War or something, it's really impressive. But the promises of God aren't spoken just in a moment and fulfilled the next moment. It's across time. And it's important to place ourselves in context and to know the Scripture and to know the full story of what we're a part of and to realize that God is still working out this whole story of redemption. And a promise was made that David would always have someone on the throne for all of eternity. And there was this great promise that said, out of, out of the root of Jesse, out of the stump of Jesse, a new shoot will emerge. What does that mean? Jesse is David's dad. And there was a tree stump because there used to be a tree and it was the kingdom under David, but it got chopped down by the Babylonians and they got taken into exile. But out of that stump, David's family who had been scattered and their tree was not fruitful anymore, God promised that someday a shoot would rise up out of that stump, out of that family line. And that shoot, that Hebrew word for shoot is netzer. Okay? It's netzer. That's, you know, the... Uh, I, you've heard us talk about here and there that Josh and I are a part of a leadership network called Netzer that's for southeastern Pennsylvania because we believe that out of ancient roots, God still does new and beautiful things. And we believe that revival will happen and that God will do all sorts of great things in our land. And when he does, it'll be a surprise to everything around us and everyone around us because that's how he works, just like he did on this day. There's a stump. And out of that stump, there's still roots that function. And shooting up out of those roots will be a new shoot. And Joseph, a thousand years later, knowing that he's part of that family line, has to make a journey from Nazareth up north, which, by the way, the root word for Nazareth is Netzer, and he has to take uh, uh, the route from up there all the way down to Bethlehem, to the town of David. Why? Because Caesar Augustus, the Roman ruler of the day, decided to flex his muscles like David had a thousand years ago. But God is in the story of redemption. And so he uses this moment of Caesar Augustus flexing his muscles to bring his child, his son, 
back to earth. It, it bears him on earth, back in this line of David. And so here he comes down to Bethlehem, and you see, you begin to see the contrast. You see, there's a contrast in this story, but what we find out is that the contrast isn't between angelic choirs and lowly shepherds. You know, there's not much of a difference when it comes to, to Judean shepherds and King David, but there's a huge difference when we think about Caesar Augustus and Jesus. A massive difference. And here's the difference. You see, contrast in our world is often defined by beauty and ugliness. It's defined by wealth and poverty. It's defined by power and weakness. In the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of earth, when heaven and earth touch, none of those things are the contrast that we see. The contrast we see is all about character and it's all about quality. It's all about good versus evil. Love versus selfishness. We have this tendency to think that when someone has a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of strength, that it seems like they're progressing forward. And so often the story of history reveals that the more money and the more wealth and the more power we have by no means indicates that we are actually moving forward. And this story stands in stark contrast to it. And it says to us that the God of the universe in all of his power and in all of his strength looks nothing like the emperor of Rome. And he looks everything like a Judean shepherd. And he doesn't come to the Judean shepherds because he wants to show contrast from them. You know why he comes to them? Because that's home. Because that's home for Jesus. You see, Jesus' town was Bethlehem. He was the fulfillment of the stump of Jesse out of David's line. This new shoot comes up and he's the king forever. And this town of Bethlehem, guess whose town it is? It's Jesus' town. It's his inheritance. This is his town. And when he comes there, there's no room for him to sleep. You think he orchestrated that? You better believe he orchestrated that. And why? Because he doesn't stay in palaces, he doesn't even stay in inns. He stays in a tent out in a field with a bunch of sheep because that's home. Because there's predators out there and he's not interested in what we have to offer him. He's interested in protecting us from bears and protecting us from lions and for caring for us. And so he shows up to a bunch of Judean shepherds and he stays in a stable because he's got nothing in common with Caesar Augustus or our picture of wealth and strength and leadership. He's got nothing in common with it. He looks just like a Judean shepherd, which is why we love him. And is also why we miss him all the time. Because we still look for strength and power in all the wrong places. We still think that Washington, D.C. is where authority is. We still think that true influence happens in places like Hollywood. We lose sight of what true power is. That it's not defined by the resources you acquire from others when you flex your muscles. It's defined by how much you can actually bless the life of another who needs it. And no one can bless a life like Christ. I want to just end with giving an invitation a little bit, a, a question, a couple questions and invitation. Christ is, the contrast between Christ and, 
and Caesar is the point of this passage, you know, to show us he's so incredibly different than, than Caesar and our idea of power. But then there's really a question when it comes to application for us. Where do we fit in the story? Where do we fit in the story of Christ? You know, during Jesus' day and in the years uh, after following Jesus, you see religious intelligentsia. You know, you see the, the, all the, the rabbis and all of the, the religious leaders and, 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 and Jewish and Christian alike. For years to come, they'll debate and wax eloquent about the profound teachings of this amazing rabbi Jesus. And eventually you see Rome turn Christian under Constantine. And when it turns Christian under Constantine, they do all sorts of works in the name of Christ. So Rome has the power to do all sorts of things in Christ. And the, and the religious intelligentsia can, can discern and haggle over all the nuances of these wonderful teachings of the rabbi. But when Jesus wants to reveal himself as a person to be related to and a savior who can help us, Rome and the religious group, they can't handle him. They try to kill him. There's only one place he can go to be received and related to as a savior and as a shepherd. And it's those who are very well acquainted with what shepherding's all about. It's the lowly of the day. And you know why? Because they understood that they weren't really the shepherds. They were the sheep. And so the question that I think just screams to us in the passage and that Luke really wants us to wrestle with in this thing is where do we fit? I mean, am I, uh, am I the person who it's like, I know these scriptures really well, and I just need God's help to help me live them a little more? Am I, am I like, you know, the, the, the businessman who's got it together, who can do stuff? Am I the Christian who can really take care of stuff for God and get stuff done in the church? Am I the beautiful mom who, you know, takes my identity in that? Am I, you know, am I all, something good in this world and I just need a little bit of Jesus to help me get a little better? Is that where I am? Or am I a lowly shepherd who recognizes I am lost and desperate without a Savior? Because, you know, if I am someone who thinks I got it somewhat together and just need some help from Jesus, then I don't understand Jesus yet. I can't relate to him yet. You know, I need to be understanding that I am a broken sinner who is desperately in need of a Savior. That I am a lost sheep who needs a Messiah to save me. There are lions and bears in this spiritual world who can very easily pick me off and I'm not strong enough to hold my own. I'll fall to this temptation and I'll fall to that temptation unless I have a shepherd who's going to beat down those lions and bears for me. I am a lost individual who needs a Lord. You see, I don't need an advisor or a teacher or just a good cause. I need a Savior a Christ, and a Lord. And that's why this passage, every single piece of the story is just context. It's all context for one verse in this story. And you know what that verse is? It comes out of an angel's mouth. It says right here in verse 11, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And he is Christ the Lord. Caesar wasn't for him. Caesar didn't give a hoot for them. He really didn't. He didn't care at all. 
Jesus, while Caesar's making them jump all over the globe in order to register so he could flex his muscles, Jesus comes from heaven above to place himself in a manger so that we have a savior. That's contrast. That's contrast. And the question for us today is this simple question. Have we followed the teacher and have we worked for the good cause or have we been the sheep who need a savior? Because today, the savior wants to be born in us. He wants to be born in us. But we gotta be sheep who need a shepherd for it to happen. And if you've never had the moment where you've actually had Christ come and dwell inside of you, if you've never learned yet what it means to actually relate to Jesus as a living individual, if you've only known of him as a, as a teacher of scripture, if you've only known of him as a, a king who we follow and serve, but you haven't learned to relate to him personally yet, then today, believe me, is a day for you. Today, in the city of Pottstown, Christ wants to be born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if you need some help figuring out what that means, please come and talk to me or one of the elders or Josh after the service. And we need to talk about this. We need to pray with you because there's nothing in this world, in this universe, like Christ the Lord. Nothing. And when you see these angels glorify, or when you see these shepherds run and praise God and glorify him, it wasn't a show, you know? A bunch of smelly, tough guy shepherds who were jumping around and dancing and telling everyone everything they see. Why? Because this is their savior. This is their Lord. This is their Messiah. This isn't just a good rabbi to listen to. This isn't just a good king to do things for. This is their Lord, their shepherd, their savior. And if he's going to be that for me, then, then God help me to be a sheep. Because I need a shepherd. I really need a shepherd. I need a savior. You know? Amen? All right, let's pray.